This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 46, and the quote of the day is one of my favorites. You can't have a million-dollar dream with a minimum wage work ethic. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I got a great guest today. We have Paul Wertico, and Paul actually sent me an email saying that he listens to the podcast and how much he liked it, and that was it. That was the only reason he sent me the email, and I was so grateful that just one, to get an email from Paul Wertico was amazing, but not to mention the fact that he wasn't emailing me to be on the show or anything. He was just like, hey, man. I really like your podcast and congratulations. And that was it. And I wrote him back and asked him, you know, if he would be willing to come on the show and he happily agreed to do it. So I have him on the show today and I'm just really, really excited about it. Just a little bit about, about Paul. Paul is, uh, he's played with Pat Metheny for, or he had played with Pat Metheny for about 18 years or so. Uh, he's won seven Grammy awards. He's toured all over the world and is just an amazing, an amazing player. And if you go on his site, there's literally a list of about 150 people that he's played with. So we're not going to list them all, but he has definitely been around the block dozens of times and, and is just the consummate professional and just a super nice guy and a hell of a player. So I'm, I'm just honored to have him on the show. Also, just to let everybody know, if you sign up for the Drummer's Resource mailing list, you can get my free ebook, Stick Control Variations. You get that 100% free if you sign up for the mailing list. But we're also giving away two Kickport FX series. We're giving away one for your kick drum and then also a one-inch one for your tom or snare drum, whichever you want to use it for. So if you enter the email or sign up for the email list at drummersresource.com, you'll automatically get the book and you'll be entered to win the Kickport, uh, the two Kickports. I'm thankful for Kickport for giving them to me to give away. So sign up on drummersresource.com and I'm going to quit talking and we're going to get right into this interview. Without further ado, Paul Wertico. Paul, what's happening, man? Thank you so much for doing this. I really do appreciate it. Hey, Nick, how are you doing, man? I really love your show. So I'm, uh, I'm really glad and honored to be on it. You know, I, I sincerely appreciate that and getting the email from you. I was, you know, I read it and I was like, whoa, Paul Wertico just emailed me and said that he likes the show. And it's nice to... You know, it's not that I do this for any sort of ego thing, but it's nice to hear people that are that are in the industry um, that check out the show and dig it. So, you know, because that's what it's all about. It's just about connecting drummers. So I'm really glad to hear that that you and, and some other people are enjoying it. Well, it's, you know, it's just like that with music too. I mean, you know, you you make a recording, and you have no idea, you know, who's actually going to be listening to it. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of moments. Sometimes, you know, you get really, you know, like somebody will come up and go, wow, you know, you changed my life or, you know, whatever. I mean, one time with the Matheny group, and this is so strange, uh, we were playing in Italy and I guess back in, you know, this is a couple decades ago, but, you know, I guess there were a lot of kidnappings of, you know, rich people's children at that time. Hmm. And this guy came to the show and he literally said that he had been like held in a cave, like for two years. And hmm. He didn't know if he was going to come out alive or anything. And what got him through was our tunes in his head, just remembering that music. That's nuts. Can you believe that? Now, could you imagine 
like, you know, our reaction to that, that 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 somehow helped this guy get through this unimaginable ordeal. That's amazing, man. Yeah. So, you know, you never know. So, you know, the power of music at the power of music. And it's it's so much larger than I think most people give it credit for or even realize it has the potential for. I totally agree. I totally agree. Speaking, you just mentioned Italy. Um, you and I were talking on email. You said that that you're getting ready to head to Italy, right? Right. I'm going in, uh, in a few days. Um, going there for two weeks. It's it's um, there's a couple things I'm doing. There's a thing called the uh, International Brass Festival mm-hmm. or the Italian Brass Festival, actually. And um, so I'm doing master classes and performances there for a week in Florence. And then you know I I I play a lot in Italy. I love. Italy, as I said to you on your thing, oh my God! And um, so there's a new trio that I have out there. Um, there's a great pianist uh, called Fabrizio Macata and a great uh, bassist called Gianmarco Scaglia, and we have a new CD called "Free the Opera." And this kind of came about. We recorded last year, uh, just two nights, you know, totally spontaneous stuff. I mean, everything was basically first takes, and we did. Uh, not only some originals, we did some, you know, improvisational, completely, you know, free improv things, but we also did some music by Verde and Pacini, just improvising off of it. And it's awesome. a really cool trio. So we're doing some gigs with that, too. Cool. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I got a call, um, man, this was probably a couple years ago, and a lady was asking me if I could do this tour. And I won't mention the artist name, but she said, she said, well, there's only one problem with it. She only tours in Europe and she only speaks Italian. And I was like, well, I speak Italian and I love Italy. So sign me up. Yeah. I was like, this doesn't sound like a problem to me at all. <laughs> you know, I was like, we, I can leave tomorrow. For, I actually, I didn't get the gig, unfortunately, but oh. I was like, man, that but my family's over there. It'd have been the perfect, it'd have been the perfect gig for me, but uh, it didn't end up working out. So uh, too bad, but yeah, uh, maybe in the future. Well, you never know. That's the thing, too. You know, sometimes things don't work out, but that opens up new doors that uh, wouldn't have may, might, might have happened if you would have gotten that gig, too. Right. right. Totally agree. So, you know, now that you've been you've played with Pat Metheny for years and, and now you're doing a lot of your own stuff and you've had this long career. But I always like to get a little bit of the backstory of of how all of this happened and how you got into playing and, and your story of how you got into drumming in the first place. So can you just give us a little bit of, a little bit of history about yourself? Sure. Um, well, my mom and dad and I, I was an only child. We moved to, um, a small city in, in, uh, Northern Illinois called Cary when I was uh, just about to enter sixth grade. And so, um, we, you know, we were there, and my mom just one time said, man, you should take up an instrument. Because I always loved music, you know. I was always playing pencils on the tables and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, just don't take up the drums. <laughs> right. And you should play an me, instrument, you know, just, just not the drums. Right, right. You know, so, but for me, that was like the thing I really wanted to do. So, you know, I joined the grade school band. Uh, and so, you know, by that time, I think I was like 12 or whatever. And, you know, all the other drummers you know, had been playing since they were eight, but for some reason, you know, I could just play. It was weird. I I mean, my band director, who was a really cool guy, he was a saxophone uh, player. You know, he taught me what he could about like, you know, how to hold the sticks and read music and everything. But, you know, I I remember, you know, the day I could play a role, you know, I mean, that was Mm -hmm. like an 
an epiphany. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, I sat down at a friend of mine's drum set who had had a drum set for, you know, three or four years and I could just play it. I had never set a drum set. I was already doing all this stuff. And, and, you know, even in the grade school band, I became sort of the principal soloist. I mean, it just sort of just happened. I had no idea why, you know, Mm -hmm. music always made sense to me. And I think part of the reason is, is that, you know, I've got really good pitch and I can, I always know where I am. I never get lost. And, 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 I'm very form uh, form oriented, so you know, like I could play something I'd never heard before, and by the end of the first time through, I know what it is, mm-hmm. and just those kind of things happened. And then uh, when I was going to go into high school, I really wasn't going to join the band or anything. I was just kind of like, you know, I got a drum set as a graduation present from my grandmother, which which was great, but I wasn't going to join the high school band. And the, the band director there, this guy named Donald Ehrensberger. He, you know, he said, "Oh man, you got you got to come." And he was like the greatest band director. I mean, the first guy, Vern Pade, was fantastic too. But I, ha- I always credit Don Donald Ehrensberger, who are, and we're still dear friends, with really allowing me to love music. Because what ended up happening, you know, I was really good in sports, and I wanted to be a chemist and all that. And so, you know, I would audition for the the uh, orchestra, uh, the concert band, and. You know, there'd be like five chairs, and I would not study or anything. You know, and I'd come <laughs> there like eighth, and so then he'd 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 like expand it to eight seats, and I and then I end up being like the you know the the percussion leader, and all the guys were cool with it. It was just there was just this thing, and he was able. I always tell this story too because you know um, certain teachers, you know, only kind of relate to like one kind of student and the other kind of student they they, they don't understand or they don't appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- two years older than me was this guy named Randy Isles, who became, um, he, I think he joined the Air Force Band afterwards, and he became president of uh, Percussive Art Society for a while, too. Oh, okay. So when we were in high school, I mean, we kind of like didn't like each other because he was like strictly by the book, you know, play everything the way it has to be played. And I'm like improvising on concert charts. <laughs> My band directors go, yeah, I like what you're doing more, you know. But he was able to nurture both those extreme points of view. So Randy was incredibly talented, became very successful. And now we're dear friends, you know, because you get older and, and you go, oh, man, you know, I liked what you were doing. I couldn't do it or whatever, you know. Right, right, right. And so this band director would let me kind of be me. And I think that's one of the biggest things is that sometimes, you know, band directors, you know, if they're if they're really got like that, um, this is right and this is wrong approach all the time. I mean, you, you, you can have kids that might be a little bit different or really creative, but undisciplined. They might not be appreciated as much as the people that just are kind of towing the line. And my, this band director, you know, knew how to do both. And so I ended up getting, you know... Um, a full scholarship at uh, Western Illinois University because in my senior year, you know, I, I was like one of the first guys to have bell bottoms and long hair and stuff in school. Right. And, you know, I had like this Prince Valiant haircut probably. <laughs> and we went on tour for about a week at different, um, different high schools and colleges. So I remember I had like a double bass kit and, um, you know, I, I remember the first gig we played, I think it was in Rockville, 
Rockport, wherever, you know, Louis Belson's hometown was. And I remember, you know, had this, we were in, the, in this gymnasium of, of this high school and the kids were kind of laughing at me at first because the way I look, oh, we got a kid. And then I played a drum solo and like got this standing ovation awesome. from the school. So that turned everything around. And then, you know, I went to Western Illinois and uh, we played there and then Gary Chafee had just started teaching there. Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting a scholarship there. And so, Everything I've done, I mean, I've been so blessed in my life. I mean, you know, a lot of stuff I didn't necessarily try to do or even prepare for. I just kind of always have done what I thought was right at the right time and just do it the best I could. And sort of the chips have fallen, you know, where I, I don't think I would trade my life for anybody's at this point. Right. So now how how were you studying? Well, a couple questions. One, what kind of stuff were you playing when you were, you know, when you were in high school and getting out of high school and getting into college? Were you strictly playing jazz stuff or were you playing everything? And, and also your, your practice regimen of not specific things, but what, what was your approach to practicing? Were you a guy that spent eight, 12 hours a day practicing or were you, were you one of those guys that didn't really practice that much and it came naturally? Well, those are great questions. I mean, for one thing, you know, that was, you know, I'm 61 so, you know, when I would have gotten into high school, it would have been like, you know, around 1968. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was like the, the pinnacle of, of music in a lot of ways. So, you know, not only was I listening to like, you know, Ornette and Miles Davis and all these people, but I was listening to Cream and, you know, I was in bands that were playing, you know, Who covers. So I was doing all that stuff. And yeah. the thing is, not to not to cut you off, but when you're listening to the Miles Davis stuff or you're listening to Cream, the greatest thing about all of that is that it all swung. And you know, I feel like there's this big, there's a big difference now between things that swing and and rock music now. You know, would you well, agree with that? Yeah, I, I I think I understand what you mean. Swing. I mean, you know, it had life. It had breath. Right. Right. It was you know, it was like a living organism mm -hmm. and sometimes now things sound more like a machine you know or they can be you know because you know once you take and we'll have to get back to you know i don't want to lose our train of thought but you know once you start quantizing everything mm -hmm. and once you start auto-tuning everything you're taking away the gray areas of of rhythm and of pitch that sometimes have made things that much more beautiful you know, and that much more individual. So the other thing, too, is at that particular time, I mean, you know, like a wah-wah pedal was like revolutionary, you know, <laughs> like so there were new things. And, and I could go uh, there was this place called uh, National Foods. It was like, you know, it was just a, a local um, kind of, you know, grocery store, you know, chain. And they had LPs there. And so I'd go and I'd look and I'd say, oh, you know, oh, what, what what is this? Uh Frank Zappa, oh, I don't know who that's, that's kind of interesting, you know, so I, I pick up that. And then even got that with, like, cream. It was, like, fresh cream. And I turn it over and go, like, Ginger Baker, undoubtedly one of Europe's greatest drummers. Okay, I'm buying that. You know? So it was there was this thing. And, then, and they also had jazz records there, too, you know. Mm -hmm. So I would just buy everything I could possibly buy. I mean, it was really... It was it was an amazing amazing experience, and one of my really interesting recalls is that the first time I heard Jimi Hendrix album, I, I was at a I was going with my girlfriend to a um, a party in, in a friend of mine's garage, you know, and he had you know it was one of Victrola's, you know, mm -hmm. and, and he had you know Are You Experienced? And he put it on, and I remember just literally like just disappearing into the Victrola. I, I just 
my, you know, my girlfriend just kind of forgot about her completely, you know, <laughs> and just went to the, the, you know, National Foods and bought that the next day, you know, I mean, so there were all these things that were happening that were just totally revolutionary. And the way I, you know, when you talk about practicing, I would practice, you know, eight, 12 hours a day, as much as I possibly could. But, you know, I never had a, a drum teacher back then. Mm-hmm. In fact, I remember asking my mom at one point, I was like, you know, hey, you know, can I say, take some drum set lessons? And she was like, no, no, just, you know, just just make it up the way you want to do it. And right. it was, wow. And because I was listening to so much music of so many different styles and, and I was ingesting this stuff, you know, I was putting it all together in my own kind of way. And I remember a lot of times, uh, you know, I, I would have a radio right in back of my drum set and, you know, I might be playing like AM radio and the, you know, the Hollies would come out or the Kinks or something. And I'd be trying to play not with the group. I'd be playing like free over it. So I knew where the time was, but I was like breathing over it and just, you know, you know, making rhythms expand and contract and everything. Right. So I was trying to get this real organic way before I even knew what I was doing because, you know, I'm thinking of rock as like having the jazz kind of, you know, free stuff and then i'm looking at the jazz stuff as having the solidity of rock so i kind of put the two together kind of almost the opposite way of what most people would think of so that's kind of how i did it you know and um i was just a voracious listener i think i think you know that's the thing sometimes you know you get students that'll come over and you know and say wow you know i really want to study jazz you know i said well great do you listen to jazz well no i don't listen to it i just really want to play it as if, you know, ding, 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 ding is like jazz on the drum set. And it's yeah, not. Yeah, that's hip. That's hip. Yeah. <laughs> and so it, it's like a language. Again, you know, I mean, you know, like you say you speak Italian. I mean, I'd love to speak Italian. But if I try to learn Italian, but I just learned, you know, learned, uh, you know, uh, Chianti as a word, you know, right, or right. Dolce Vita or whatever, you know, that's not really speaking Italian, you know. Right. And so you have to understand where all these things come from, how they're put together. And that gets back to even the reason, you know, contacting you about, about your show. It's not even the just the notes, but it's the message behind the notes. And you say you're from Philly. So I just talked about Tom Mooney because the Naz was from Philadelphia, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Oh, that band much? Are you familiar with that band? Uh, no, I know them, but I don't know much of them. Okay, it was Todd Rudgren's, like, kind of breakout band he was like 18 or whatever they were they had three three albums and they were fantastic and um you know he wrote a lot of the material in fact there's this guy named Stooky. I, I don't know if he's still out in philly but they, they have like a re uh you know whatever version a new version of the nas it's, it only it only has him but the, you know that was the kind of music i and i'd hear like a drummer and i go wow i love what this guy's doing okay but then i wouldn't try to do exactly what he was doing on the drums i would try to do what i thought i could do to make the same impact on the music mm-hmm. okay right. so in other words, whether i was listening to roy haynes or whether i was listening to you know paul whaley from blue cheer i would listen to what happened to the music when the drummer did something like his fill or his lack of fill or you know what what he played his dynamics and then i would try to do my own version trying to get what I thought would affect the music in a similar way, but the way I thought I should do it. I got you. I got you. Sense? Yeah. And I mean, it was really, it's been fun. I mean, you know, I think all of us, you know, we're all individuals. I mean, um, 
I know on some of your broadcasts you were talking, you know, with drummers about like, you know, like things where guys want to be the fastest drummer and all this stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, everybody is different. You know, I'm I'm who I am. I'm you know, I'm never gonna be a six foot four African American woman, you know. I right. mean, I'm me. So I you know, rather than go try to be something I'm not I want to be me. And and so that's, I think, one of the things is that everybody's got their positive and negative things in some ways, but those can actually be your, your strengths. Mm-hmm. You know, don't have a lot of speed. Maybe you, you'll concentrate on the groove or vice versa. You know, I mean, I think it's really, that's the thing, you know, people go, oh, music, oh man, I want to be famous or I want to make a lot of money or, you know, I want people to love me. I think that the real thing is being, you know, finding the most concentrated version of yourself and how it works well with others. And then hopefully that will inspire others that listen to you to try to do something similar. I think that's, that's our legacy. It's like having kids almost, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. And I like how you were saying that you are who you are and you're not going to be somebody else. You know, some people were made to be point guards and some people were made to be fullbacks and some people were made to be sprinters and, you know, mm-hmm. if you're if you're six foot five and weigh three hundred pounds, you're probably not supposed to be a track star, right? Exactly. You know, and I I totally agree with that. Um, there's some I, I've watched I've I've seen so many videos of you playing, and there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on. Sure. One is the fact that you really, and I know why now because of the way that you've explained how you approached playing and how you re- really gotten out of the box of like that. I, I always call it like the four, four square kind of thing. Mm. Um, and how do you suggest other people get out of that box? Because I know a lot, of, and I know myself as a, when I was younger, as a, as a younger drummer, that everything was four and, and really square. And, and, you know, I would watch other drummers play and, and it would seem like, even if it was in four, it wasn't implied in four and things like that. So how do you suggest people kind of get out of that four, four box, as I call it, and, and start to expand and make things expand and contract and, and breathe a little bit more? Okay, well, that's great. I mean, um, there's a, a multitude of things we should talk about there then. So if you're just talking about four, four, you know, being stuck in four, you know, the time signature, obviously, um, the more music you play that's not in four. I mean, in the old days, you know, there used to be four, four, and three, four. And then all of a sudden, you know, it became five, four was, you know, part of the deal. And then all of a sudden, you know, bands like Don Ellis or Mob Vision, all of a sudden, you know, time signatures start changing. So you start to end up playing a lot of different, different grooves and time signatures. You know, you just kind of get used to it. But I think the main thing about trying to open up your doors as far as expression is... Um, like if, if you just play straight up and down, you know, and there's the whole thing about like, you know, I'm trying to make each hand sound the same and all that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that. There's nothing wrong with anything really. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the way I play, for instance, you know, I pull out notes, you know, it's, and, um, you know, I hit sideways. I do, I think of, of dynamics as pitch, you know, so the harder I hit, I can hear the pitch go up on the drum, you know, so I'm not thinking of it louder. I'm thinking of it as actually pitch change. And, you know, then, I mean, even even if you're doing like an accent um, exercise, you know, you can accent straight down and it's going to give a certain kind of color to that accent. But, you know, if you pop it down with, with a um, with like a molar stroke, that's going to have like a down sound. If, if you pop it up with, with uh, what do you call it, like the full stroke where your elbow goes out, mm-hmm. that's going to have the color of the, of the drum go up. 
So you start looking at all the, the, the small nuances that make a rhythm the rhythm of an individual. Because, yeah, you know, you look at a, a drum book or a drum magazine and, and, you know, you could look at, you know, a transcription of whoever, Roy Haynes or, you know, John Bond, you go, that's all it is? Because it doesn't look that complicated, really, usually on paper. But it's the nuances that they put in the music. Now, the same thing, we were talking about the music now getting kind of a little squarer. I mean... A lot of drums now, you know, the drums sound sort of the same. There's some incredible drummers. I'm not putting anybody down. But, you know, in the old, olden days, you know, everybody had a little bit of a different color on their drums, different mm -hmm. sound symbols. You know, the way they played was different. You know, it's, it's sort of the kind of thing what happens even in, in our culture. I mean, you know, if, if you're a, a doctor, you know, 100 years ago, you, you could probably take care of like all the, you know, different diseases. But now, you know, you got specialists and everything because there's so much more information. So I think when I work on stuff, and I try to get people because less people come to study with me and, and, and they talk about flow. They always say, you know, how do you get your flow? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I've got the, you know, the metronome in my head, you know, I've, I've got the clock in my head, but I'm basically talking over the metronome. And I always say, like, you know, if you're walking down the street, you can keep a steady walking pace, but your speech pattern can speed up and slow down depending on how excited you are. Sure. But your walking is still the same. Mm -hmm. And so if you can learn to speak through your instrument, you know, so, you know, put, put you know, some, some kind of, uh, you know, vamp on, on your feet or whatever and then play in time and then go out of time. But you're not out of time because you're still in time. So you might not be playing mathematical subdivisions of, you know, 7 or 17, but if, if, if a computer looked at it, it probably would be, but you don't think about it that way. You know, you're, you're thinking about the flow from the beginning of your phrase to the end of that phrase, and then it just keeps on going. And, like, breath is really important. Like, when we speak, you know, we take a breath. Mm -hmm. So drummers, and I think sometimes even pianists, keyboard players, people that don't literally have to breathe to take another note on their instrument, sometimes run things together too long. So if you think about your phrasing and you take a breath, that's, that breath is a natural occurrence in, in life. And I think people can kind of relate, even if they don't know what you're doing or why they're liking it, they can relate to that because it's part of what they do naturally, too. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It, it makes total sense, one hundred percent. Everything that you're saying, I'm I'm over here nodding my head, saying I I totally agree with everything that you're saying, and, and it makes total sense. Um, you know, everything that that I always try to do with playing is is making a conversation out of it and and saying things, uh, you know, using different colors like you said and different accents and different you know it's like the i remember watching a video of jeff Percaro where he's saying that you know the hi-hat pattern that he's playing it may be something like a straight eighth note thing but he has it weaving through the groove with different accents and different you know different sounds and different colors that he's playing but he's still playing an eighth note groove you know yeah and and i think that the nuances are what what makes music music and that's what makes it it, it gives it the, the bounce and it gives it the life behind it, you know? Sure. And, you know, even when people get bored with their own playing, I mean, I think it's impossible to get bored with your playing. Even, even if you don't know a lot of technical things, you can just change things up, you know? And, you know, if, if you play the same fill the same way, well, then that's, I can see where, you know, you might get bored with it for one thing, but then, you know, play hit hit different instruments play the same rhythm hit, hit different instruments or like instead of making your snare drum your your you know your basis off of your kit which most people do you know 
try your small time as your basis for a while. You try your crash symbol as your basis, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's all those different things that can give you a different take on, on the same things that you play. And then you could put in some dynamics to it, you know? I mean, the thing with Matheny was always interesting is that, you know, he had a thing called dynamics within the phrase, meaning that our music, you know, it was always going up and down somewhere. So if I played a drum fill, I wouldn't just go da 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 you know? It wouldn't be straight. It would be It would be something that was moving it forward, which changes the pitch, obviously. It changes the color, and you can do that. You can do that with anything. And I mean, that's you know, I'm doing gigs now. I just did this thing with a guitar player, John Mulder, who's like a guitar player. I've been has been in my band for years. We're great friends. I'm just playing a table with brushes, you know, and I can play the whole gig that way nice. because I can get all those colors out of just that you know it doesn't really matter you know you don't need you know five bass drums and stuff unless that's what you want to do that's fine if you want to do that but in general it's all the like sort of the micro improvisational things which can be just as interesting as the macro improvisational things mm -hmm. and the other thing I want to say too is that when people say they get bored you know if you're just playing the million dollar beat for instance which is I love playing the million dollar beat but if you're just playing it and you go oh, that's all I'm playing I'm bored. Well, if you just play the million dollar beat in five different tunes, chances are there were five different, um, you know, melodies going on, maybe five different chord structures, maybe five different tempos, maybe five different lyrics, maybe the, the form of, 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 of those five tunes was different. And if you listen to yourself through the other musicians, your part fits perfectly. So you shouldn't be bored with what you're doing because if you listen to what's going on around you, that's a really important part. You know, I think people get bored too 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 quickly now. I mean, you know, going back to the days where I bought all those LPs, I wore those LPs out. You know, and I would listen to the whole thing over and over again. Now, you know, with iTunes and everything, it's really easy just to kind of go listen to something for thirty seconds and say, "Oh, wait, wait a second, I, I want to listen to this now too." And you kind of get overwhelmed, so you don't really get into anything to the extent. That, that it used to used to be when we had more time to get into those things. There weren't so many distractions, you know? Right. Do you think that, that people get bored because of their ego as well? Well, probably. Um, you know, the ego thing is interesting because, you know, you need an ego to the point where, you know, you're going to go on stage and, and, and say, hey, I'm important enough to play in front of you guys, you know, or with you other guys. That's the good part of the ego. The bad part of the ego is when you're comparing yourself, I think, to something that you're not, or you think that, you know, you have to be something else that you're not at that time, at that moment. Because, you know, life is a journey. I mean, when you're 18, you know, you're looking at a long traveled road, hopefully, in your life. When you get to be my age, you know, I've already traveled a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so now, you know, you get older and it's like with Peter Erskine, I listened to his, his interview, you know, and, you know, you kind of start accepting who you are in a good way, though, you know, right. and you start going, well, you know, maybe I'm not going to work on this particular kind of stuff because I've got this other stuff to work on and, you know, I'll probably never play that music and I'm not that interested in it. So I'm going to do what I do best. And I mean. I started playing, I think, when I really loved my playing was, you know, several years ago when I just said, hey, I'm just going to play. I'm not going to judge what I'm playing anymore. 
I'm just going to go for it. And then all of a sudden, everything kind of opened up. It was really weird because, you know, when you're sitting there judging what you're playing as you're playing it, then you're, you're, you're not in the moment of what you, you're doing. You're living in the past constantly, you know. And then half the time people are wrong anyway because, you know, I remember Steve Rodby, the, the bassist from Athene, you know, we're dear friends. A long time ago, he came over to my uh, house and he said, man, you know, play me you know, a, a few, you know, things, you know, of your favorite, favorite moments in music. So I remember playing him like 10 things and he looks at me and goes, you know, those are all mistakes. And I was like, what? You know, because, you know, I played Ginger Baker thing where you go, but that, that, or something like that. I play these things that kind of stretched and kind of were really interesting. And he kind of, you know, he wasn't, he realized that they weren't mistakes, bad mistakes, but he was kind of looking at it that those are unusual moments. You know, I wasn't playing something with somebody playing so fast or so, so complicated. Right. And I think in a lot of ways, the older you get, you start realizing, you know, our, the idiosyncrasies in your own playing sometimes can be taken to your advantage. You know, I mean, some of that stuff is really, if, if it helps the music and it helps the other musicians play and satisfies the producers and all that, that's a beautiful thing. So, you know, why not? And I think the other thing too, I hope I'm not talking too much, but not at all, man. That's what we're here for. Well, I, okay, great. Cause I love to talk, especially about music, but let's do it. <laughs> is, is that people, will hate a, a particular musician for the exact same reason other people love that musician. Right. And right. so you realize that, okay, you know, you're your own musician. So some people aren't going to like you. Some people are going to like you. You want to like yourself because, you know, you want to be able to, you know, have that incentive to go on stage all the time and just take joy in expressing yourself, you know. But it's it's really funny. I mean, we, like you were saying earlier, you know, we can't be everything. So to be the best of ourselves, and hopefully once we're that, we'll have enough kinds of people that want to play with us. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I blue. I mean, that's what's so funny. I mean, I you know, like again, you know, people think I'm a jazz drummer, but I just did a blues record. I mean, I I just you know, I do so many different kinds of sessions, and I love all that music. You know, I never feel like I'm. In playing down, if I'm playing simple music, I never feel like, oh man, you know, I hope people don't hear me doing this because, you know, I just, I'm just, I'm just a drummer and I'm a musician and I just love to play and I'll play anybody's music as long as I think I can do a good job doing it. And if I don't, I probably wouldn't take the gig. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I always wonder, you know, how, <laughs> how you figure out who you are, you know, as a player. You know, it's like, okay, what am I, am I this chops guy or am I this, this groove guy or am I, you know, what are, and, and developing what your strengths and weaknesses are. And, you know, I think it's just a matter of being honest with yourself and saying, okay, I'm really not good at this. I can either work to get better at it or it doesn't come naturally. So why wouldn't I just do the things that come naturally and really own that? If that yeah, makes any well, sense. Yeah. Well, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, it's funny because sometimes you can be known for stuff that, you know, uh, well, I mean, here, here's an example for like jingles, for instance, like when there were a lot of jingles in Chicago, you know, I, I mean, I did some, I wasn't like on the scene because I was gone a lot, but I would find myself getting called for like jingles that were like, you know, mixed meter, you know, like really difficult jingles because I was in Matheny's group. Right. 
Right. So I think, oh, this guy playing 20 to 8 and he can play and all this stuff. Okay, great. So, you know, I'm here at 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm looking at this sheet music. Okay, I got to play in 17 8 for this jingle, you know? <laughs> Where I just wanted to play like Charlie Watts, you know, for a lot of that stuff. And I mean, it's just funny because you get to get to be known for certain styles. And, you know, just like an actor, your, your biggest role is usually what you get to be known as. So obviously, you know, I've done a lot of, I mean, I'm, I'm hundreds of records, but the Matheny stuff, especially, is, you know, th- those so you know i've got gold records from that stuff Mm -hmm. so people think that's what i am and it's so funny about that because you know before i got the gig with pat i was in this band i was in a lot of bands i was playing with everyone in chicago but there was a band called earwax control that was a totally completely improvised band and really nuts and we would use like televisions on stage you know and, and i mean it was just completely crazy and you know when pete when i got the gig with Matheny, some people were like wow you know that's strange because, you know, Paul's more of like a, you know, kind of an avant-garde player. And then a few years later, a great sax player named Charles Gale uh, came into town and I got hired to play with him. Now, he is an avant-garde player. And then people were going, wow, why did they hire Paul? He, he, he plays Matheny music, you know. Right. So you kind of get to be known and you're almost typecast, which can be a drag, uh, especially – you know, if you're playing like rock music or, or soul music where there's a lot of artists that play similar music to that, mm-hmm. it's kind of you, then they might hire you because they go, oh, yeah, I love the groove that this guy played on this record and I can see that on this. But with with Pat's music, I mean, you know, I got called, you know, by Paul Winter, you know, Niels Landoki, different different people to play similar kinds of music but there's not that much similar music to what what the Matheny group played sure. you know that was very specific kind of genre in a way that we incorporated a lot of different genres and sort of made it into ourselves and people would think I was like a cymbal player you know now when I go on I, I might take one cymbal you know or no cymbals I mean right. it, it just I just played what I thought the music needed and I didn't really care about my personal um you know, reputation as far as like, oh, what are they going to think if I if I if I do this? So I always try to play from the music. I didn't put a lot of fills or tom fills or anything in that music. I just, you know, I tried to make the melodies sound good. And like being a form player, I remember a guitar player once telling me that when he got lost, he could just listen to me and he'd know where he is in the song. So Pat's music was real melodic. I always loved melody. You know, it was really interesting as far as. Um, you know, the forms were very complex. And so, you know, I always t- took pleasure in being able to play those those complex forms and make the music come alive every night. Because we played, you know, we'd go out for three months at a time almost every night and come back for two weeks and go out three months. And, you know, I just loved making that music. And now a lot of stuff I'm doing is like totally 100% improvised. This new band, Word of Cocaine and Gray, it, it's this great... Um, Larry Gray is a, a dear friend for God for about forty years. He's an amazing bassist, but he's also a cellist, flautist, guitar player, just mm. brilliant. And this guy David Kane, who's an incredible sax player, but you know he uses iPads and stuff, and he's also a great filmmaker. So we played um, a gig last year, it was the first time we ever played together, totally free in front of the in front of the audience, no rehearsal, nothing. We filmed it. And David and I edited it down, and it just won an independent music award about two weeks ago for best live performance uh, album. Oh, that's great, man. Yeah. And so then the next CD was actually totally free, and that was 
the release party for, for that, you know, Sound Portraits was the first thing we did. And then the second thing we did was at this great club in Evanston, Illinois called Space. So then we did Out in Space. And now we're working on stuff. We did something, um, a seven-camera shoot uh, in Springfield, Illinois, where David Kane lives. There's this amazing house called the Dana Thomas House that the architect Frank Lloyd Wright built. And so we went there. We did a seven-camera shoot, and a friend of ours that is a big guy at Shure uh, Microphones, which is about five minutes from my house, he, he came, and he, the whole audience wore wireless headphones. And there again, we improvised everything completely free. No, no talking about anything. And that's what I'm really into right now. You know, so I'll go do a blues record or I'll go do, you know, a jazz straight ahead record. There's there's like I did about a dozen records just, you know, in the last couple of months and they're all different. But this thing about just going and playing completely free, I just love, right. you know, I just I just think because then, you know, you know, you could say you could run out of ideas because it just, you know, you just. All, you, when you can play anything, well, what do you really have to say? But it's like a conversation that if you talk at people and say the same thing over and over again, you're going to get bored. But if you listen to what other people say to you, that makes you think a different way. So what you end up thinking and believing and even saying can be changed. And so like the three of us, the Word of Cocaine and Gray Band, you know, it sounds like written out compositions. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's just, it, and it's just because we're listening to each other and reacting. And so when I listen back to what I'm playing, I go, man, I've never played anything even like that before, but it was a reaction to what the other two guys were playing. Right. And I think that takes a lot of trust. It takes trust from the musicians. It takes trust from the audience to go hear something like that, which totally. you like to do, but it also takes trust in yourself to go, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to go off and jump with, you know, there's no net, there's nothing, but I believe that I, I can swim. You know, I believe mm -hmm. I come and rise and, and, and experience something I've never experienced before. And I think to get back to your initial question about like how do you practice, how do you find new things, I think you have to go where you don't know where you're going to end up. You have to work on stuff that's uncomfortable, maybe. You have to work on stuff that you don't really maybe truly understand, but you know, you'll know you get through that wall, and then you'll, you'll, there'll be a whole other universe happening. You know? mm -hmm. I think that's really you – know, sometimes great teachers can get you there a lot faster. I think that's you – know, some teachers aren't going to have you do exercise and stuff. Other, the really great teachers are going to take and give their experiences and make whoever they're teaching like – you know, all of a sudden see things they've never seen before because of what the teacher has experienced. And you're kind of sharing that. I mean, there's a lot of ways to to get to it, but it's the responsibility of the individual drummer to want to go there and, and hopefully, you know, think it's worth the effort. Right. You know, the beauty of it is that you can, you were saying about, you know, there's no net and being safe and, and the beauty of it is you can fall on your face and it still doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. And, and nobody's going to get hurt. Nobody, you know, that's, that's the beauty of it. I love that. Yeah, Sometimes falling on your face is something like, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't, you know, if this has ever happened to you, but you know, it happens sometimes, you know, you're recording and you play something and you go, oh, shoot, you know, but, mm -hmm. you know, but you don't stop. Right. And then you listen back to it and you go, okay, can you play, you know, like three minutes into the track and you, you're, you're just expecting to hate this thing and you, and you listen back, you go, Damn, that's great. Yes. You know, that was something that, that came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you go on YouTube, there was this band Marbin 
there's this two Israeli musicians that were fantastic that were in my Mideast Midwest Alliance band. And so I did their second and third record. What's the name of the band? Marbin. It's it's M-A-R-B-I-N. It's uh it's uh, Danny Rabin and Danny Markovitz. They put the, the names together. They're like the most touring band, man. They're doing like 300 gigs a year. Really? I mean, they've got a, they're great. And anyway, there's, if you go on YouTube, there's this thing called Loopy. And that was like the first track I did on the record. I did their whole record, both of them, just one day, you know, each day I did one, one record. And if you'll see me playing, I'm playing with a click track. And the things like in six eight or whatever, if I remember, I didn't have any sheet music. I'm playing along, and the track wasn't done. I mean, there's no bass on the track when it was done. There was no saxophone solo, nothing. And I just started playing, and they, for some reason, they started filming. So you could see me looking at them like, okay, hope I'm doing okay. But I, you know, I finished the track, didn't stop, and that's the only track we did. It was perfect. It came out great. Nice. Yeah, and so, you know, the idea is that sometimes, you know, you just have to kind of just believe that what you're doing, just keep going at it, you know? It's just, uh, it's 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 fine. Because I could have stopped halfway through and said, hey, is that cool what I'm doing? Or, mm-hmm. you know, hey, you know, is that bridge that I, you know, I mean, do you want more? I mean, no, I just played, you know? Right. And, that's, and I'll link to that on the, on the site, too. The listeners know they can, every podcast has a, a page dedicated to it so this would be oh man drummersresource.com forward slash session 46 and we'll have uh we'll ha- i'll post some some of those videos on there yeah that's a good about. one uh there's a really good one called paul Wortico drum solo on youtube where i'm playing like a kitchen sink and everything that's a good one um and then you know there's a word of cocaine uh and gray website too i mean if did you go to my website at all mm-hmm Yep. Okay. You know, there's there's some links to that. So you know, some because I mean, I w- I really would like people to know that you know when they think of me that I'm not just you know, a symbol drummer too. I love symbols. Right. I mean, that's you know, it's it's great. But the you know, I mean, I, I do a lot of other things, and plus, I'd like to get some of that music to be heard because you know, even in the old days, you know, you'd find a record that would change your life, and then you know, you'd realize that that thing, maybe you and you know another 500 people might have bought that record, you know, like the greatest record ever released. And then no one knew about it. You know, you didn't know about it, but you found it and it changed your life. But, you know, for whatever reason, it was on a small label or, you know, it it wasn't the kind of music that most people listen to or whatever. No one knew about that. So when that happens, think of all all the impact, not only on me, but what, what it could have had on other people had they known that that music even existed. Right, right. Now I wanted to touch on. We talked a lot about Pat Metheny, and I wanted. I got a lot of questions um, about you know people asking how that gig happened, what it was like playing with Pat. Um, so can you go into that a little bit about about how you got the gig and some of the experiences that you had playing with him? Sure. Um, well, I mean, you know, like earlier I said I was always into melody, right? Mm-hmm. So when I started getting on the scene in New York, I was playing. Um, with this guitar player, Ross Trout, who was a really, I think he roomed with Pat at the University of Miami for a while, but he was like a similar type of guitar player. And we did, uh, we had a band, Steve Rodby actually was in it. Um, and for some reason, around like 19, what was it, 76 or 77, Pat was coming into Chicago and you know the, the group hadn't formed yet. So whatever drummer he was using couldn't make these like week of shows around the Midwest. And uh, he called me 
because uh, I think probably through the connection of Steve Rodby, who we knew a little bit better and everything, and I turned him down because uh, I was playing with this really incredible sax player named Joe Daly. He was older. He was like in his 60s when I'm like 20-something. Mm-hmm. And um, Joe Daly was like a great teacher. I mean, he taught, you know, he had Joe Farrell, John Clemmer, you know, I think even like Mike Brecker and a couple people took lessons from him and stuff, you know. And I had been playing with him for like two years, and we were going to play the Jazz Showcase, which was like, you know, Carnegie Hall of, of jazz clubs in Chicago, right? And I didn't want to turn Joe down because I'd played with him for two years. I, I said, so I told Pat no. And, you know, he was cool with it. And I don't remember who he, they even got in that tour. And it was it turned out to be a funny gig anyway because that weekend that we played, it was Muhal Richard Abrams on piano, Steve Lespina, the great bass player with Jim Hall and everybody on bass, Joe Daly and myself. And that was one of the coldest weekends of the century. I, I mean, it was like unbelievably cold. <laughs> you know, it was like one of those things where I walked and, you know, you, your eyelids would freeze shut when you walked into the gig, you know. But anyway, so I didn't, you know, so Pat, I guess still heard about me because then I started playing with a band called the Simon and Bard group. Fred Simon and Michael Bard had a group. And again, the music was sort of similar to Pat's um, in a way and, you know, very melodic. And I started touring around with them. And so um, about, God, like in 1983 or whatever, Pat and Steve, after their show in Portland, Oregon, came and heard the Simon and Bard group because we were playing in Portland too. So we were playing later. And I remember, you know, I just said hi to Pat. I didn't really talk to him at all. I just said, you know, hi. He said, hi, sound great, thanks. And about two weeks later, all of a sudden, I got a call to fly out to Boston um, because they were auditioning a new percussionist, I guess. Uh, And so I flew out there. I didn't learn the material or anything. I mean, I really, you know, I wasn't thinking of this as an audition. I was just, you know, just a chance to play. So we played for about, oh, 20 minutes or so, maybe a half hour, and then, you know, for the audition for the percussionist, and then he left. And then the four of us, Steve Rodby and Lyle and, my, and Pat and myself, played for about 12 hours, you know. Wow. And I knew that, you know, D- Danny was leaving or whatever, and so um, Pat said, well, um, I'll be in Chicago in about two weeks, learn some of the music. I said, okay, you know, so then I got together with Steve Rodby and he, you know, there was no, there was no sheet music or anything real. I was just trying to learn what I could learn. And then Pat and Steve and I played as a trio on like New Year's Day or whatever. And then a couple days later, he said, do you have a passport? And I said, no, he said, get one. We're going to Europe. And that was it, you know? Yeah. And, and so, you know, it wasn't like trying to get the gig at all. It was really, you know, I'd never try to get anything. I mean, it's, it sounds weird to say. But I just kind of, you know, I, I'm a firm believer you just do what you do, you know, for the reasons you, you, you're you doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and so Danny had gone to Mahavishnu. I mean, everything was beautiful. You know, it was like a, it was like a, it was, it was like a really nice thing. So then we did, God, you know, we, we, we toured Europe and then we toured the States. And that was the beginning of all this stuff. And, 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 and the music progressed. I was with them basically, you know, for almost 18 years or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. And... It was a really interesting experience because, like, the first gig I played with Pat, we got to Oslo, Norway. I mean, I had this drum set, you know, that I used to use in Chicago. And literally, the second tune, the snares popped off the snare drum. And Pat doesn't stop the show for hardly anything. So I 
we quickly duct taped the snares back on the snare drum. And then we played a three hour and 45 minute show, you know, <laughs> and in the audience, like Jan Christensen, the great drummer, you know, yeah. great, he was out in the audience. I think Jan Garbrook was in the audience. So the next day, Pat and I went and we bought a good snare drum, you know? So in other words, my kit wasn't really up to the standard of playing what we were going to be playing. you know. <laughs> and the music, that first tour, I mean, you kind of learn the music, but it's only scratching the surface of what the music really is. So every time we would learn, you think you'd learn something, it would be like, no, no, let's do this or, you know, this or, you know, you'd, you'd start solving little problems and little issues and little cool moments in the music. And every time you would learn something new, for every 10 things you'd learn, there'd be 10 more. I mean, it was like really, that's what I loved about it. It's just, you know, the music, music had such a deep conception of really what it was to make it what it was. And that was the, that was the real fun part of it. I mean, it, it was really great. And, you know, just the standard of playing with those type of musicians every night, you know, I mean, we never sloughed. We would never, you know, every night was like we were playing Carnegie Hall, you know, right. and that was good. And a lot of the stuff, I mean, by the middle of it or whatever, I mean, a lot of it was with sequencers, you know, I mean, a, a large part of it because there was all these other extra parts going on. And I mean, it, that was the other thing, too, because I think one of the reasons I got it, because even I could just play with a click. I mean, nowadays, I mean, I do sessions, I do first takes. I just did this guy, Scott Earl Holman. He's a, he's a pianist in town. And I just done his last three or four records. And I mean, the last couple of records I did, it was just click and me. And maybe like a chord thing. And we're talking about playing 7, 8 or whatever. Right. And I'm supposed to play these things. Some of these, the last record, two of the cuts were 17 minutes long. And the, short, and the short one was 12 minutes long. And I nailed, I nailed all three of them first take. Oh, never, that's awesome. Ne- never got off with a click. Kept the form. Did all this stuff. You know, it just, I mean, you kind of get used to doing this stuff, you know? And the other thing that was interesting with Matheny's band is that when I would come back to Chicago, you know, and then I'd play with local musicians, they could feel how intense I was because, you know, you get to that point where, you know, our shows were about three hours long. So, you know, you can concentrate perfectly for three hours where, you know, the local musicians might be, you know, playing a wedding and stuff, you know, they're looking at the girls walk by or whatever. So even though they were great musicians, you know, I, I think I kind of made them like really okay. We're going to play this, and we're going to hang in there. We're not we're not going to lose the focus, you know. And I think you know not just Pat's band. I think there's other drummers and other musicians that do that that are in world class bands because any world class band has that focus, and that's one of it's like it's like muscle building almost, you mm-hmm. know, for, for your intensity and for your uh, your uh, what, what concentration. So that was you know it was all good. Other things with the band, I mean, um, you know, we played a lot of different styles. So one of the reasons they had so many symbols and everything is because we would go from, you know, a Brazilian type of tune to like a swing tune to like a rock tune to like a classical kind of tune, you know. So every tune, it was almost like I had like an orchestra worth of instruments and each stuff, even if it was one symbol that only hit like three or four times, that symbol needed to be there to be part of the composition that I was playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause we play about th- 23 songs a night, you know? Right. That's a lot and, of tunes. Yeah. Sometimes we play two shows. Now imagine that hmm. two, three hour shows, Good you know, I remember right. in Poland and sometimes, I mean, well, e- I mean, even when my daughter was born, I mean, I stayed home for her birth and then I flew out to Japan. The first gig I did was I got off the plane. I went and we did two shows in Japan. There were not only 
made for television, but they were also made for that DVD, live, uh, Pemathini Live in, in Japan, 95. Now think about that, just getting off the plane, you know, and then going and, and, and playing that stuff. But I mean, it wasn't that hard because, you know, music, that's the one thing about music is that, you know, you could be sick as a dog, you know, you could have 102 fever, whatever, you know, and you think like, how am I going to play a gig? And then you go up on stage and you play it. And the next thing you know, you feel great. You know, it, 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 it like, it like cures you, you know, I mean, music is such an amazing thing. So, you know, I, I played with kidney stones, man. I mean, you know, I mean, it's it's unbelievable what, what you can play with. You know, I played a few times sick, and I've fl- I've flown back from Italy and and played here. You know, so I was up for x amount of hours and didn't think I'd be able to keep my eyes open and start playing. And and you know, everything's fine. But I've n- I've never played with like a serious issue or you know, like a broken foot or something like that, or with kidney stones or. <laughs> I've never had well, I've never well, had that unfortunate circumstance. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've never hurt myself, luckily, playing. So right. I've never, you know, like I ne- never had to play with a broken finger or broken foot or any twisted neck. I mean, sometimes I forgot what drummer it is, and I wouldn't say it even if I remembered. But I remember reading one of the drum magazines, like they had a list of like, you know, issues, medical issues that this guy has had from playing the music that he played. You know, it was like you know, dislocated, this broken, this. Jeez. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, because to me, the sticks are a shock absorber. You know, mm-hmm. I hold them just enough so that they they, you know, that I can hold them. And plus, you know, if you hold them loosely, you get more undertones and more overtones. And again, you know, I mean, when you're talking about different sounds, you know, you, you, you know, if you play with the French grip, that's a different sound than with, you know, with the American or the German grip. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're constantly manipulating sounds. And if you hold the sticks really tight with all the fingers, that's works for some types of music too, but I mean, in general, man, you know, you're not supposed to hurt yourself when you play. You know, no, I I agree. I was just talking to somebody on Twitter today, and they had a picture of their hand and it had a blister on it, and it said, "Drummers, this has ever happened to you?" And I just commented back that no, that shouldn't happen. Right. You know, well, you shouldn't be, uh, um, you shouldn't be doing that. So. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, live and learn kind of thing too. Absolutely. So what? So with the Matheny band, what was the reason behind you leaving? I read uh, somewhere that I guess you wanted to spend some more time with your family and stay home more. And well, there's a there's a couple things. I mean, for one thing, you know, you know when you feel like you've kind of done it, you know, like you got it because you know all a lot of those tours, you know, leading up to the end for me, you know, I'm still working on stuff, you know. But the last year, you know, the '98 or whatever that was around that. You know, I had fun. I, I felt like I understood the music. And then we got two, three Grammy nominations and we won two Grammys. That was one thing. So, and I started maybe, you know, getting, I started gaining weight. I almost started getting lazy, which was a drag, you know? Mm-hmm. And then also my family, I mean, I can say this, this is great. I mean, my wife was also in, in this uh, Pat Metheny Secret Story Band. She's amazing. And my daughter, when she was born, you know, I stayed home for her birth. I trained another drummer to replace me for, for you know, he, he did a gig, I, th- I think, in Korea. And then I flew out and made that Japanese thing after she was born. And I mean, the day, the day my daughter was born, I had two jingles that day. Like they were like three minutes from the, from the, the hospital. So I dropped my wife off. <laughs> I, I'm doing the first jingle. And I tell the like, I'll be back. 
Yeah, and I tell the producer, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to go back to the hospital. I might not be back. Get somebody else for the second one. I'll call you if I, if you need you. And sure enough, we did, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then I stayed home for about two more days, and then I flew out to Japan to, to you know, to do the, the Matheny tour. Now, one thing I remember in, in my life is that, you know, the day before I started college, I went to see Elvin Jones's quartet uh, at the Jazz Showcase, and and. It was it was Gene Pearl on bass and Dave Liebman on saxophone and Frank Foster on sax. Oh uh, no! And um, oh my God, just Joe Farrell on saxophone and and uh, Elvin. Now Frank Foster was supposed to be playing, but his wife had died, and he mm-hmm. had to go home. So Dave Liebman ended up playing. And I remember it was incredible. It was like a six-hour show. They played six hours straight. We were in the, in the second row, and I remember Elvin looking at me looking at my, my girlfriend at the time and giving her a stick after about five hours just, you know, because it was so cool. But the thing that really made a difference on me is like, wow, you know, music is really important, but my fa- I, I want to be home for stuff. Right. And so I can honestly say I've never missed a birthday for my daughter. I've never missed a, like a dance or anything. I've, I've been there for everything, you That's know? Awesome. Yeah, and, and awesome. so... I somehow balanced all this stuff out. I mean, I don't know how. I mean, some of it was maybe Zen archery or whatever, really. (laughs) But, you know, I didn't want to be gone so much at that time then, you know, because I wanted to be a dad. I did not want to be, you know, I mean, it's funny. If you look at Buddy Harmon's, I love Buddy Harmon too, you know, but if you look at at the Daniel Glass Roots of Rock Drumming, there's a thing where Buddy Harmon's talking about, you know, he did like an estimated at least 18,000 sessions. And at one point he goes... I went home one day and I saw my wife and I said, where, where are the kids? And, and she goes, well, they've grown up and they've moved out of the house. Right. And, you know, that was, you know, that was his choice. I mean, that was something. And, you know, that's fine. I mean, whatever. I, I'm, who am I to judge? But I did not want to be that person. You know, I wanted to be there for my daughter, you know, and my family comes first. It really does, and that was that was another thing, and I and I think probably Pat was you know we were just ready to move on. I think the whole thing is just like when I joined the band too, you know, it, you can things kind of run it run their course, mm-hmm. and you can just keep go, doing doing the same thing. But you know, after after I left, I started working out. I got really healthy again. You know, I I, I wanted to you know I, I kind of reinvented myself, even though I was fifty. That's you know. Great. I, yeah, I think that's a real important thing is because I think age, obviously, it's just, you know, you can see in the mirror that you're getting older, but I still, when I play, I feel better than I ever have. I'm, I have more technique. I'm faster. You know, I, I know more. I, I, I'm ex- I accept more. I have more fun now than ever before, which is really interesting. You know, I feel like I'm 18. Right. That's great, man. And, you know, I think that it it speaks volumes to to – your professionalism and just you as a drummer and as a person of why you've been successful in the past is kind of like you said, you know, knowing what to do and when to do it. And, and, you know, like you said, it was, it was time to move on and it wasn't a, it wasn't a bad thing. It was just like, okay, well that's, that's over. And I'm going to go into this other cool part of my life. Right. And, you know, I mean, uh, Antonio's incredible drummer. So, and they moved in a different musical direction even too. So, you know, I mean, so everyone kind of won, you know, there were no Mm -hmm. losers, because, you know, people lose when they do something where, you know, you can tell the stuff's starting to fall apart or it's not growing anymore. People are dissatisfied. I mean, when when things are reborn, I mean, you, that's the thing. Something has to die to be reborn, obviously. You know, right, a right. For, even a forest fire creates new 
plants coming up out of uh, the ashes. So mm-hmm. I think that's a good way of looking at life, you know. Mm-hmm. I totally but it's agree. scary. I mean, most people don't like change. I mean, that's that's why when I'm talking about musically playing totally free things, that scares the hell out of a lot of musicians, I think, you know, because it's it's like the unexpected. And the unexpected can be kind of scary because you kind of want to have something that you expect and same for audiences i mean look at audiences they want to hear the hits mm-hmm. they want to hear songs they can sing along with so any audience that's going to go and hear music that they're only going to hear that one time that's never going to be created again that takes a, a different type of audience too so you know, all that stuff kind of goes hand in hand and hopefully you end up in a position where you've you know the 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 um, the pieces of the puzzle are fallen in the right places mm-hmm. so now i'm an associate professor you know at Roosevelt University, which is fantastic. You know, I love teaching. I love the university. You know, I've had great success with my students. And, you know, I'm doing that and balancing, um, you know, playing as well. So who would have thought? Awesome. Speaking of one of your students, um, on on the drummer's resource, I put that I was going to be talking to you. Mm. And Evan Ryan said that he studied with you for years, and he said you'll be a mentor for life, and he told me to say hello. Oh, that's great. I loved Evan. When I learned a lot from him, too. I mean, that's the thing, you know, you always learn from your students, you know, hopefully, too. And, I mean, Evan had, like, ridiculous, like, rudimental chops and everything, too. So, you know, with him, we worked on, you know, different styles of music and stuff and, and different musical concepts. And a lot of times I'd be asking him, well, man, how, how do you play that thing, you know? Right. Because he was doing things that I couldn't do. And it was it was great. And he was like such a good spirit. I mean, and he's got the, the spirit of a drummer. When he plays, you know, he exudes positive joy. I mean, that's here. When you were asking about my early thing, here, here's another thing to think about, too. I, um, when I was just sort of starting out, I mean, you know, I was already out of college, but I was playing some gig and I was young and, you know, I had probably long hair and probably, you know, all that stuff. And I'm playing this gig and there's an, an older famous jazz bass player named Eddie Calhoun who had played with Errol Garner on all those great records. Mm-hmm. And so we're playing and on the first break, you know, he goes, kid, you'll always work. And I was like, excuse me, what? He goes, <laughs> no, you'll always work. What do you mean? He goes, no, man, you'll always work because you play happy drums. Your drumming makes people feel good. Nice. And I, I was like, whoa. And that's like one of the greatest things anybody ever said to me because that's what I, I want to do in my life is make people feel good through my music. Mm-hmm. And to have like this amazing bass player, he was probably you know in the 60s or 70s, tell me when I was like early 20s that that was like that's always stuck with me. And I tried to tell my kid and my students that too. So it's not about them; it's about everybody else that they're playing with, you know, sure. as well as the audience. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree, man. And you know, that's the that's the thing. It's it, no matter how good you are and and what chops you have and all this stuff. If if you're not making the music sound good or you're not supporting the other people in the band, nobody's going to want to work with you. Right. So it doesn't matter if you can play it a million miles an hour, you know. Absolutely. It doesn't matter. I have yeah. a couple other questions yeah. um, from, from people that posted stuff on the site. Oh. Um, I think we covered most of them, actually, except uh, so somebody was asking about how you feel about uh, Pat's commentary on Kenny G. Do you, do you, do you know that, that yeah, whole I thing? That, right. yeah. Well, I mean, um, you know, Pat has every right to say what he has to say, you know. Right. I felt a little bad about it, you know. I mean um, – it's not like I'm a big Kenny G fan, you know, mm-hmm. but uh, Larry Gray, the bass player I was telling you about, you know, earlier, one time 
And Simon and Bar, we were in the Simon and Bard group uh, too. We were touring, and we opened for Jeff Lorber Fusion mm-hmm. back in the eighties. And there was a sax player named Kenny Gorlick, who is Kenny G, uh... and he was killing. He was killing. I mean, he was nobody at that time, really. And Larry and I were like, "Who is the sax player?" Because he was burning it up, you know. Right. So he can actually play. And huh. so he, you know, he made a he made a decision to play this kind of music that some people like. I mean, you know, I can't put down people for liking what they like. I mean, they some people might like smooth jazz. If I don't like smooth jazz, that's that's my own issue. But you know, I'm not going to put him down. And the thing about playing with Louis Armstrong, probably Louis Armstrong wouldn't have dug it, but he might have too. I don't know. You know, I mean, Louis Armstrong. Hello Dolly. He didn't want to record Hello Dolly, but that was that became like one of his biggest hits, you know. There, so, uh, you know, I love Louis Armstrong. He he's like you know like one of the greatest figures in jazz. So I guess to put yourself up that you're good enough to play with that is one thing. But I just don't like negative energy. And I thought you know that opened up a can of worms for for Pat too. I mean, I never talked to him about it, but you know, Pat's a really good spirited person. He's a good guy. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes you you can kind of get caught saying stuff on the fly or nowadays, I mean, you know, with with instant Twitter feeds and stuff, you can get caught doing anything, you know, that that you wish you hadn't said or whatever. Right. I'm sure I'm sure he felt that way. I'm not sure if he, you know, feels great about saying it. I don't know, you know. And and people do that stuff all the time. I mean, you know, if um think about all the drum beats that have been used by you know hip hop and rap artists yeah. so you know they're off of the bernard purdy album the pretty purdy album you know the first tune beck used that so i mean is beck as good as beck is is he not you know is he good enough to say that he could use pretty you know bernard purdy as his drummer like that i mean who knows i mean right, right, right. bernard purdy plays with everybody and, and wants to make people happy too so, you know so it's a complex issue mm-hmm. I don't think anything is just a black and white, this or that kind of kind of comment. So I guess my long answer to that is, I really don't know. You know, I, I, you know, um, I think people have the right to to like what they like, and I think artists should have enough respect for each other to like probably just kind of you know let it let it be what it is. You know, mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. So one other question: What is your uh, your approach to tuning? The tuning, great. Okay. Well, um, people always like the way I tune, and I can tune really quickly. I always have been able to do it. I don't have necessarily like a method. You know, I don't tune to, you know, intervals, fourths or fifths or whatever. Usually, because I play a lot of different size drums, I just tune where each drum sounds good by itself, and then I'll change it to, um, to where I kind of like what the melody is if I'm using, you know, three drums or if I'm using, you know, seven drums. I just, so, so, so I, it makes me feel good the way it sounds and, and the way it, it, it opens up. Because for me, I want the drums to have a wide dynamic range. So like the harder I hit them, the drum's going to open up. The thing I don't like is when the drum just kind of chokes off at like, you know, double forte or something. Mm-hmm. And then as far as, you know, the, the pitches are concerned, um, I usually tune the, um, uh, the lower, the bottom head, actually uh, lower than the top head. Now, I know a lot of people tune the bottom head higher so that the, the, the pitch comes back, but I usually tune that one a little lower than the top head. 
and then I'll, a lot of times I'll just do one lug and I'll t- turn it to the left a little bit so that the pitch won't stay steady, but it'll go down, you know, because mm-hmm. if, you, if you have one lug that you tune it higher, it can go, which I don't really like that much. Right. But that's that's basically, you know, what I do. And I and I just like regular heads. But, you know, you might hear something funny. Vic's drum shop here in Chicago, um, Vic Salazar is like the greatest drum shop owner ever. And we're totally. dear friends. Totally. And so he's got a, a kit of mine, a DW kit. It's just a, a small bebop kit, um, five-piece kit. And he has it there because he'll supply drums for me, you know, when I'm doing these gigs, right? Well, Remo had a Remo day uh, about a month ago, and they came, you know, and I, I was interviewed. And I have Remo heads on there. They've been on there for over 12 years. Are you serious? Never changed them. There's suede ambassadors on top. There's no pock marks. The drums sound amazing. They're, they're, yeah. I mean, I've never, never done anything with them, and I've used that drum set for like, you know, like 15 years or whatever. That's nuts. It's nuts. But I mean, yeah. And I mean, so to me, that you know, you can change heads. You can do whatever you want. It's fun to experiment with heads. But I mean, this kit sounds so amazing. People, they don't believe that they've been on there that long. But I don't think Remo even makes those particular heads anymore. Maybe, maybe because people would put them on, they wouldn't buy new heads. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Planned obsolescence. I don't know. Ooh, but no. But isn't that funny? You know, and they just sound. I just used them uh, last week. Um, we played Friday night uh, with Larry Coriel's Power Trio, and I used them. And people were coming up saying, "Man, those drums sound amazing." I said, "Those heads have been on there for at least twelve years. No one believed it." <laughs> That's like the. Um, um Aaron Sterling, who plays with John Mayer now, is playing uh-huh. with like this old J.C. Penny kit that was like that was like five hundred bucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I you know, I played it a lot. It sounds of, good. It sounds good. You know. Well, and, and certain kits make you play differently, and certain kits you know give you more like soul factor, you know, and and some kits fit the room better. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just whatever you sound, you you know, and I, I have a feeling that. It's not only the drums and cymbals, but it's you you yourself that will that sound, you know? I think any great drummer can make a bad-sounding cymbal sound good, you know? Any really good drummer can take an out-of-tune kit and still project and make it sound good, you know? And vice versa, you know, you, you, some other guys can make a great instrument sound terrible, you know, by their touch. So I think a lot of it has to do with, with you know, the sticks we use, how we hit the instruments, you know, all, all, there's so many X factors in all this stuff. And then each one of us has, has our own personal X factor, and that's the beauty of it. Because if we all sounded the same, that would be boring as hell, you know? Right, yeah, and I feel like maybe it's kind of going that way a little bit. You know, I was talking to Rick Murata, and he was saying the same I thing. That, that one, too, yeah. What's that? Yeah, how he sounds like everybody is is starting to sound the same, which is, which is a shame. Well, you know, I mean, things do run their course in a way too. I mean, um, I mean, you, you think about how, how many variations on, on like, you know, beats can there be, you know, and, and, you know, and then also, you know, the studios, again, we were talking about the way, the way things are recorded. Um, and then, then the way, you know, things are, you know, fixed, you know, cause I mean, you know, you listen to old who stuff or whatever, you know, stuff breathes, you know, you listen to old jazz stuff and things breathe. It's, it sounds more human. And I think maybe maybe we'll get back to that. I mean, I know some bands, you know, they take pleasure in having mistakes in their music, too. You know, and that's that's a good thing in, in some ways if, if it's a, an honest uh, expression of really what they want to give to the audience at that time. But, I, you know, I have hope. I, I really feel like 
we're just scratching the surface. And it's, again, like that new thing where, you know, even in Daniel's book, like how long it took for a drum set you know, all of a sudden to start using like a bigger ride cymbal, then everybody used it, you know, or a mm-hmm. smaller bass drum, then everybody did it. Or, you know, how long it took for all of a sudden people to start playing match grip because that was wrong. I remember being in seventh grade and, we, you know, kids were talking, Ringo, he doesn't know how to play. It's, you know, he holds the sticks the same way. Or even open-handed technique. I mean, you know, we all grew up crossing our hands over the hi-hat because that's the way we were taught. And then, you know, it, it, it's things are slow to move, you know. So I think all of a sudden something's going to happen. It's going to be like everybody's going, oh, my God, why didn't I think of that? You know, there's going to be a lot of those moments. Yeah, it should be it should be interesting. I love the, the evolution of the way things are going. Yeah, and we're part of it. You know, it's yeah. fun. I mean, just you know, enjoy the ride. I agree. So speaking of enjoying the ride, you've had this this long career of playing professionally. What piece of advice would you have for people that are that are either coming up now or are trying to do this professionally as sort of like a, you know, if I if I knew then what I know now kind of thing? Well, um, that's a good question because things have changed so drastically. You know, especially in the last couple, you know, few years, you know, I remember when I first started teaching at Roosevelt, you know, I would always stop at Tower Records in the morning on the way to class and everything, you know, and now that's gone. Days are gone. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of things have changed. And I teach a music business course there too, you know, um, and God, I mean, just to keep up with that stuff is amazing. Cause you know, if you use a book, by the time the book is out, it's almost obsolete. Sure. So I think that the main thing is, is, is to really do this because you really love it and you really feel like this is what you need to do in your life. You know, I think if you're doing it to, you know, to be famous or if you're doing it to be rich or to be popular or whatever, I mean, I think that's sort of like a, a fringe benefit that lucky people might get. But the real, the real people, you know, that really have succeeded have done it out of just this love for the instrument itself and for the process of growing and just you know seeing life through your instrument i mean i gauge i gauge my life through how i look at my music in in some ways you know so i think if you're going to get into it decide okay i'm in it because i love music and then once you're in it you know just just take it really seriously and, and, and don't close your mind off to things. You know, don't say this is good, this is bad, you know. Don't don't say this this drummer is good and this isn't bad because everybody, you know, knows that I like I had one student one time a long time ago that, you know, this guy, I won't go into detail about it, but you know, he was a very difficult student. I mean, just couldn't swing and just, you know, really was just like, oh my God. And then all of a sudden he gives me like a, a, a CD of him playing like drum and bass music, you know, his trio, and he sounded fantastic doing that. Hmm. So it's fine, you know, find the niches that make you feel good about the music. And, and when you practice, you know, practice, have fun, and then work on stuff to make it like, you know, that you grow every day, you know, make, go through the pain of the growing process and then end it with, again, like, you know, a fun thing, you know, so that you love the instrument a, a lot. And then, you know, just try to just try to be a good person. Try try to do the right things, you know, because, mm-hmm. again, you know, like even Peter was saying this, I think, in his interview that a lot of times, you know, people don't want to work with somebody. It's a drag. Right. So, you know, try to realize that music is, is a gift and, it, and, you know, you owe if you're going to do it, you know, you owe yourself and, and, you know, the public, the, the, the gift of giving it back 
in, in, in the best way you can, you know, and, and I think, and then just enjoy the ride and, and sort of always remember there's going to be a lot of obstacles. I mean, Jeff Berlin, the bass player, once gave a master class uh, at our school, you know, I had him hire him for a master class and he did this thing on, on the blackboard where he said, okay, you know, this is your freshman year, this is your senior year. And, you know, obviously, you know, the, the dot on the senior year was above to the right of the of you know of the your freshman year, but the line wasn't you know it wasn't a straight line. It wasn't a geodesic. It was ups and downs and ups and downs and downs and ups and ups. And but as long as it went from down and you finished up, that's that's the process. Mm-hmm. So you have to even enjoy even even the down parts or, or the growing processes. You know, right. right? I would tell them all that. I mean, hopefully that's good advice. You that's, know, I think that's great advice. Now I'm looking at I'm looking at your site right now, and I want to let all the listeners know that you have a ton of things on your site, a ton of products on here. Uh, there's all types of CDs. You have uh, your DVD, your Drum Philosophy DVD. Oh, um, that's not on your site though, right? Yeah, no. I mean, I'll, let me go to my site real quick. Um, and then you have the the tubs, which I think are really cool. Those promo tubes. sticks, tubes. Yeah, tubes. And also, there's there's also a new product now called acoustics that. Um, being made in England, they're sort of like tubes, but they're softer. They're more for like educational purposes. So that's another thing that just came out. You can, you can even see that. Now the products page on my website, I probably, you know, some of that stuff you can just get through other things. I mean, most of those CDs you can get through CD baby now and stuff. Cause okay. you know, the way I have it there is like, I'm going to go to the, the post office and mail them out. And I kind of got tired of that. I was almost going to take some of that stuff down, but all those, all those things basically are now pretty much available online. Um, especially if you go to CD baby, cause I, I just put a lot of that stuff up. Okay. iTunes has some of that stuff too. And then, um, the drum key, people still order the drum key and stuff, you know. But most of that stuff, like I said, is available uh, in, in uh, either online or in, or in some stores. Okay. If I had a nickel for every drum key I lost. Oh, my God. <laughs> Telling you. No, these are great because you just kind of just put this just on your on. hi-hat. You know, it just, it just sticks on your hi-hat. Yeah, it's a, uh, if the people listening, just so you know, it's a it's a drum clip or it's a drum key, but it has a clip on the back of it, a rounded clip, so it can clip onto any of your stands or anything like that. So, so you don't lose it like all of us do. Right, it was hide, made by the hide and seek game. What's that? It was made by Slug Percussion for me. Oh, okay. Are they the, the same people that make the beater? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so so Eric over there, who's a dear friend, I mean, he 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 wanted to do a you know, a signature drum key for me. So I was like, sure, you know? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> well, Paul, thank you so much for, for taking so much time to chat today, man. I really do appreciate it. There was a ton of information that was exchanged here and I know the listeners got a lot out of it, but I did as well. And, uh, th- you know, thank you for contacting me and, and I'm glad you're digging the podcast. I'm, I'm glad that you were a part of this, of this whole, uh, of the whole podcast. And I just, I really do appreciate it. My pleasure, Nick. Seriously, man, it was great. Hopefully, your audience, you know, got something out of it. They can always go to my website, paulwordico.com, if they want to email me with any questions or whatever. Okay, but, great. Now, no, do you I, teach, do you teach uh, privately? Like, do you do the Skype lesson thing or no? I do that too, yeah. You do? Okay. Yeah. I mean, so, a couple of, one of my, I don't know if you know, one of my former students is Hannah Ford with Prince. Oh, nice. Yeah, nice. she started, started studying with me when she was 16, and then she came to Roosevelt and studied with me there for a couple of years. And then by that time she was already starting to get all these gigs and endorsements. She was great, you know? So I've been lucky. I've got, I've got a number of students that have really, you know, 
gone on to do unbelievable great things. So that's it's like having kids. Like I said, it's, it's watching a, them grow. Yeah, that's awesome. So for all the listeners, they can go to paulwertico.com and all of your, all everything that we talked about, um, you know, some of the videos and how to reach you directly and everything will also be on Drummer's Resource at drummersresource.com forward slash session 46. So they can find all the information there that'll link directly to you. And uh, yeah, Paul, thank you so much, man. I, re- I really did appreciate it. It was an honor. Thanks, Nick. Same here. <clears throat> talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay. There you have it, the great Paul Wertico. Such an amazing dude and just just a ton of information, man. I'm so glad that, that he emailed me and that we had him on the show. And be sure to check out his website, paulwertico.com. All the information that you want to hear from the interview is at drummersresource.com forward slash session 46. Like I said earlier, be sure you sign up for the email list at drummersresource.com and you'll get my free ebook stick control variations and you'll also be automatically entered to win the uh the two kick ports the kickport fx series so definitely do that and until next week keep drumming thank you so much for listening and i know i always say that but i i just want to let everybody know that i really do appreciate everybody listening and the comments and all the feedback that i get from everybody so from the bottom of my heart thank you so much and if there's anything that you want to hear on the podcast or anybody that you want to hear on the podcast just email me at nick at drummers resource dot com or send me a message on facebook facebook.com forward slash drummers resource at twitter uh, or on twitter at drummers r source and on instagram at drummers resource i'll be talking to you soon thanks again peace